Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. So today we have with us Gabriela Gonzalez, who I only know from the digital world and this new world where we don't get many opportunities to cross paths in person. And the primary place where I encountered Gabriella was around Dolling, which we've talked about a number of times on the podcast. And we're like, okay, we got to have Gabriella on to, to talk about Dolling and declarative languages and all that fun stuff. But anyways, welcome, Gabriella. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, we were, just before we started rolling, starting to talk about teaching functional programming, which is something that Bruce and I have been been trying to kind of crack the nut on and figure that out. Um, so I don't know, Bruce, what, it, what, it, well, what do we have to ask Gabriella? Lots of books on this. And I see, I mean, there's a few exceptions and watching YouTube videos and everything. And um it just seems like it's called the curse of knowledge and people have you know talked about the curse of but but apparently in pedagogy there's this idea of the curse of knowledge and i just see it repeated over and over again people forgetting what it's like to come in from the outside and so there's like usually what happens is that they will say okay functional programming is good for this array of reasons uh, no no real clear motivating factor but just a handful of them you go all right maybe and then they go okay and first you got to understand recursion so that you can understand how fold and those things are written and you're going i, I mean i never use recursion and why can't i just use a for loop and 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 you know the the, the process of explanation just isn't compelling and i think we lose a ton of people in the process because this is repeated over and over again every once in a while i'll come across something where i go okay that's clearer but so what are your what's what's your perspective on this what, how do you think we should teach it yeah so uh first let me preface this by saying throughout this i'm going to be shilling a lot of my blog posts and talks because i tend to try to document everything i know to refer to it sounds uh, like a good idea so one of those talks i would like to shill here is uh how to market Haskell to a mainstream programmer. And it's, it, it was written for a Haskell audience, but I think it would be useful for people who are trying to evangelize any language. It could be like Scala or whatever, what have you. And uh, one of the key things is that um, I think one of the common mistakes languages make is that they try to position themselves as general purpose languages. And they may be general purpose languages, but that's not the way a newcomer to language will think about things. They're typically not coming to use the language for its own sake, but to solve a very specific class of problems. And typically the mindset that they approach these problems from is, uh, what is the best language to solve this problem in? And they will use that, they'll ask their peers, like I'm trying to do, I don't know, data science. Like what would you recommend is the best one to choose for data science? And maybe they'll say, I don't know, Python, like use that. Uh, so the really the question you wanna ask, so the, you said, I think you touched on this when you said like, a lot of the introductions are kind of missing the motivation. Like, what is the the use case that will motivate all these features you're teaching? Um, and the motivation is useful not just to get people interested in it, but also because uh, very often, whenever using a language, there are many, you need to be kind of opinionated about it. There are many trade-offs you make when you're uh, structuring, like, how to structure a project, what things to teach, what idioms to follow, how to architect things. And those trade-offs may differ 
from application domain to application domain. Uh, and so you can't give very clear and decisive answers for how to structure things uh, if you don't if you don't have like a clear use case in mind. Uh, let me give a concrete example from the Haskell side, right? So like one of the common um, controversies in the Haskell ecosystem is whether or not people should use optics or lenses. And in, in my view, the correct um, answer is- Can you explain what that is? Yes, so optics or lenses, you can think of kind of as uh, first class getters and setters. Uh, and they're kind of like a JQ, for like complex data structures, I guess is the are you best way to explain JQ? it. I don't know what that yeah. is. I don't know if you've ever used JQ. No. Oh, JQ? Oh, you should use it. It's uh, JQ is a command line program for manipulating JSON. I highly recommend it if you do anything via the command line. Uh, and it's like, oh, it's like XSLT for, yeah. for JSON. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. You're, you're yeah. not selling it to me. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was terrible. <laughs> Anyway, so um, so basically, uh, most of the advantage of using optics or lenses is when you're working with large, uh, deeply nested data structures. So, like they they commonly come up in, uh, like say, like data science, data science or compilers. So, like for those application domains, if I were writing like a Haskell book for compilers, I would go all in on lenses. Tell people you got to learn how to do this. You got to pay that complexity price up front, but it'll pay dividends in the long run. If I was teaching Haskell for another use case, I would just say stay away from lenses, not worth the complexity, and so on. So that's why like having that clear uh, use case in mind can uh, can crystallize a lot of the educational material as well. And like to make an analogy, like in uh, in engineering, it's very common when you embark on a very large project that you first do um, requirements gathering and then you do design. And the reason you do them in that order is because uh, very often there will be multiple designs for how to do something and, you, and the requirements that you gathered serve as a yardstick for comparing those uh, competing designs and see which one best satisfies the requirements. Uh, and so, so coming up with a motivating use case for the language is like the requirements gathering. And then the design is like the actual pedagogy material libraries and frameworks surrounding that use case. What's, what's interesting, and I, I really like this, and I think that that this is how we can connect people to something new is you have to you have to address it in terms of what problem they're trying to solve mm. but one of the challenges tensions with this is that oftentimes you are reducing down like like lenses was a great example you may for some use cases not talk about lenses because it's not applicable to the particular problem that they're solving and what i've seen happen is that people will um, in this approach, they'll they'll look at a language and be like, okay, this is what the language can do for my use case. And they compare that with another language. And they're like, well, these are kind of basically the same. And because they've kind of reduced the surface area of this general purpose language down to the way, the way that it addresses their particular problem, it doesn't look super compelling. But they also have, you know, are only looking at it through one particular aspect of it. And so they're not seeing all of the capabilities that may be useful as they want to address other problems and have you know a common language that can do other things yeah but you got to keep in mind that you can't like throw everything you know it's at some point they do a cost benefit analysis and how much effort do i put into an, analyzing this language yeah versus well so uh, i would say and so this is the second thing from the talk i mentioned which is that um there are two types of adopters. There's early adopters, and then there's mainstream adopters. And one of the key differences between those two classes of adopters is that 
an early adopter, when they're evaluating a any tool, any anything they want to adopt, the question they ask themselves is, is this the best tool for my specific project? A mainstream adopter does not evaluate technologies that way. So they, they view themselves as being as belonging to a larger whole, a market, if you will. And the question they ask themselves is, is this technology or tool the best for the market that I belong to? Uh, hmm. Regardless of whether it's the best for my specific project, uh, because they want to be able to confidently recommend it to their peers. And so like that is actually is the key thing that the key question they ask themselves when, ad when adopting a technology, can I confidently recommend this to my peers without reservation? Can I say this is really the best option for all of us as a group? Huh. Uh, and so like that, that and, and that it's is much more of an individualistic of versus individualistic <laughs> exactly. needs yep. versus community needs. Exactly. Well, and I would think that the mainstream adopters would, ad would rely a lot on, in other words, not necessarily do all the experiments themselves, but rely a lot on, um, say, the work that the early adopters have done and the opinions that came back from them. Is that? Yeah. So this is a, this is another key difference between early adopters and mainstream adopters, which is that uh, early adopters they actually so the 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 less people use a technology, the more that they like it, because they feel it's a secret weapon. It gives them an edge over the competition because they're not using it. Whereas mainstream adopters are the opposite. The more people that use it, the more they like it. Because then they feel like, you know, strength in numbers, better ecosystem, better third-party support, and so on. So would you say that <clears throat> way back when Java got started, they understood this and they kind of hijacked the process? They go, well, uh, we'll make you, it you mainstream. Yeah, so like, uh, I was, I mean, I was not familiar too much with like how Java was marketed and adopted. I, I've heard that... Uh, like they went on like a marketing blitz back at the time Sun Microsystems did to try and get Java adopted. I would say it's like it's not so much like paid advertising that that does it. It's like you need to build that complete experience. People need to feel that this is truly the best solution for the whatever domain that you're marketing it for. Uh, and if you can do that, then like it'll kickstart a chain reaction where people will, where people will confidently recommend it to their peers. Like that's the key thing. Like you you can't really fake it with ad spending in my opinion i think you can't anymore i think <laughs> i think they were able to do it <clears throat> yeah just all the right things came together mm -hmm. so so another kind of concrete way to take this is bruce and i and, and our friend bill are writing this book about effect systems and effect oriented programming and we're using scala 3 just because that's what we know best um but i don't know if this is true bruce you but let's say that our goal is to make the idea of effects be uh, more mainstream. I don't know. First, let's see. Is, is that our goal, Bruce? Well, I mean, I always think of the individual um, reader. And I, I mean, my goal is to give them an intuitive understanding of you know, what effects are, why we're bothering with them and how this, this is why I keep asking these fundamental questions about it is because those are the questions that I imagine the reader asking. So that's yeah. my goal. You, you might, I mean, you're, you know, from your position, you might be looking at mainstream marketing or whatever. I'm just saying, get one person on board really clearly and they will do the work for you. If, if, yeah. if indeed that's the work you want to do. So, given that context, Gabriella, any advice for us on how to how to how to approach this, how to do it well? 
Uh, just to clarify, you're asking like how to motivate effects or how to teach them. I think well, both. Teach. We're we're doing yeah. both. I mean, because yeah. the teaching, I think, to to me, you 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 know, you need to motivate it before somebody's willing to put in because it's a lot of effort. You have to rearrange your brain from. Yeah, I mean, you, so... maybe if you've always done Haskell, you don't understand the the struggle. <laughs> that it takes to go. I, I kind of do. Cause like I, I used to do Scala programming at Twitter. I was there for a few years. So uh -huh. like I kind of get it. Uh, so um, I think what I would say is so in terms of motivation, I think the most common application domain where I see effects used is compilers and interpreters. Uh, it feels like you very often want to have like, you know, um, well, specifically because you need to have pure, well, it's, it's a very technical answer to explain why it, it commonly comes up in compilers and interpreters, but it does, in my opinion. Uh, like it's it's very it's 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 very common. Huh. Uh, other application domains, like you could probably get away with just like what many imperative languages do, like language support for exceptions and just ordinary side effects. Um, but yeah, I think like that's the the main use case. I think that really motivates exceptions. Um, the it's it's hard for me to say like. I think the other use case would be like uh, EDSL, EDSLs. They benefit a lot from uh, effects, but EDSLs are like not really a market. So you'd have to you like make it external more... domain specific languages. Embedded domain embedded. specific languages. Uh, okay. so embedded means that like you, you're, you're still programming in the language. Yep. It's not like, you know, you embed some syntax tree in the language, like you're just writing code. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, I mean, again, embedded domain-specific languages is not a market. Like, there is no embedded domain-specific languages team at a company, right? So, yep. so yep. as you can't, like, it, it's difficult to market it, or, or people don't even know who to recommend it to because, again, it's not a market. Um, whereas compilers, that that's a market. Like, companies have compilers teams. Like, that is that is definitely a thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it ultimately I think comes down to We're ahead. looking at it more from a reliability standpoint. And I think eventually a code reuse standpoint, because that's yeah, where I'm so coming to. Like, one of the reasons people use effects is to purify code. So make it so that you can like interpret the code without side effects for like, you know, testing, mocking and so forth. Uh, I'm kind of lukewarm on that. Like, I think it is useful, but uh, I think, well, even if it were really lightweight, which commonly it is not, uh, I think that like there are better approaches in my opinion. So like, so at some point I think you want to talk about doll. And so like one of the things I think yes. that doll does right, that which obviates some of the need for effects is that in doll makes it very easy to interpret code uh, abstractly, meaning that you can actually interpret like a function without even knowing all of its arguments. Like you interpret the body of the function abstractly. Uh, and because of you doing that, it, it lets you see what the function would do uh, it's like it's, it's like symbolic interpretation. You can see what it would do under a large variety of use cases without having to like mock the function, right? And I feel like that's actually where the industry should be going. Rather than focusing on effects or mocking or test testing, we should actually be m moving more towards uh, abstract interpretation or symbolic interpretation of code to understand what the code is doing. And then you can imagine then like if you want to do a golden test, instead of golden doing a golden test of like a function input against the function, it's like, instead of doing a golden test of a function, calling some inputs and comparing the output, what you really should be doing is a golden test of that uh, beta reduced uh, function syntax tree. 
and against like some golden syntax tree. So you could then refactor the function to your liking, but then so long as the as the function's behavior is uh, uh, intentionally the same, uh, modulo you know alpha beta normalization, then you should be able. To, then you just diff that against the expected abstract syntax tree, and then verify that the behaviors did not change. In fact, Dalt actually lets you do that. So Dalt like has mm -hmm. tooling support for. Uh, within the language for dipping expressions against dipping expression arbitrary expressions uh, within the language. So let's back up a little because yeah, I know I what is yeah. Can... Let's let's talk about like what okay, briefly what is doll, but more importantly, what made you decide that you needed to create it? So doll was not originally created to solve any particular uh, use case. It was actually purely an academic thought experiment. Uh, specifically, uh, in, on social media, a very common discussion topic that will come up is somebody will say, like, I think my configuration files are getting large and unwieldy, and we should, like, use a programming language for configuration. So we can get take advantage of things like don't repeat yourself, testing, uh, types, uh, and other quality assurance things. And then invariably, somebody will counter that by saying that uh, I don't want my configuration files to be uh, complex or uh, I don't want them to be code. Like I don't want them to be Turing complete. I think Turing completeness is kind of a red herring here, but that's a very that's a very common language that people will use. Like I don't want my configuration file to be able to panic or hang or crash or or be unreadable. Like I like plain inert data like JSON or YAML. Uh, and so the experiment was like, could we create a language that could thread the needle and give you the best of both worlds? So meaning that like you could still have programming language features, but at the same time still have strong uh, static assurances. So like, for example, you could remove indirection to make the code easier to understand. Uh, and the code was like as pure, so like no side effects. So it can't, and it cannot crash or it cannot like compromise the host system and so forth. Uh, and then, uh, so basically Dalzel is a programming language with a very strong emphasis on language security so that it's almost as good as inert data. And, uh, and then eventually we started marketing Dahl for specific use cases like ops, ops in particular. Um, but, uh, that was kind of how Dahl's started. And how do you spell it? And what's the URL for people to look Oh yeah. For? So the way you spell Dahl is D-H-A-L-L. Uh, it's named after a character from my favorite game, Planescape Torment. And uh, the website is spelled uh, D-H-A-L-L-L-A-N-G dot O-R-G. Okay. Dahl so dahllang.org. Right. So I, I think this is a good time to um, inject uh, Getz's Law, which is something I tweeted about a couple of years ago. And this is for Brian Getz. The, the law that... Um, that Brian gets came up with a couple of years ago, I summarized as being every declarative language slowly slides towards being a terrible general purpose language. And this is actually based on a couple tweets, one from Paul Chisano, who I'm sure you know. Um, he started with uh, a 
tweeting something about how Google Cloud had created a workflow system based on YAML. And Paul said, bold idea. When you want to get computers to do something, use a programming language, not a YAML file. And then Brian Getz responded with where I uh, derived the law from. And he said, every declarative language eventually becomes a terrible programming language just without the aid of actual language design. We learned this with XML 20 years ago. It astounds me that some that people seem to think the lesson of that age was that we used the wrong shape of brackets. <laughs> and I, I feel like we've been in this tension of like declarative languages versus imperative or whatever. Ever. And my my interest in Doll has been that I feel like it gives you the right things that you need, but not more than that. And that there's a lot of places where we need where where with those boundaries we can avoid Getz's law because for some use cases we really shouldn't we really should prevent it from sliding down towards that general purpose language. So configuration is is i think a good example of that there's a few other areas that i'm curious if it would be a good place for like a build tool definition right. um sql a replacement for like I queries like sql <laughs> that is, in fact like actually uh so uh I think I, I so I'm going to show another of my blog posts which is uh, the I think it's called the end of history for pro end of history for programming or something like that. And basically I think currently like the current paradigm of programming is like large general purpose programming languages. And I think where programming will eventually go is a much larger number of smaller special purpose languages. Doll being like an example of that. Nix being another example of, of that. Uh, and the reason why I believe this is the case is I believe the natural trend of programming languages is to become more and more mathematical, meaning that like non-mathematical details get pushed into the runtime. Uh, but in order for those non-mathematical details to get pushed into the runtime, the language needs to become more special purpose. Like the runtime needs to be, become thick. So many languages currently right now have very thin runtimes. Uh, but in order to like, let me give you a, a classic example of how languages become mathematical of memory management, right? So earlier languages, memory management was very front and center in the language. Like, oh shit, here comes uh, a memory allocation. <laughs> and, and nowadays, <laughs> nobody thinks about memory management anymore. It's one of those non-mathematical details that has been- Well, you do in Rust. Unless you're in yeah. Rust. Yeah. Rust is probably like the, the, the one major exception. And yeah. I, I, but I kind of think of like, let me, let me clarify. Like you still need languages to implement the runtime. I think of Rust as a great runtime builder right? Not one of those languages that I'm, I'm talking about that will, that exists on top of that runtime. Uh, but yeah, so basically you need to be able to push another example of like an implementation detail getting pushed into the runtime in Haskell would be laziness. So in most languages, evaluation order is something that's very front and center in the language. You have to think about it. In Haskell, the language is insensitive to evaluation order. It becomes an implementation detail of the runtime, what order things are evaluated in. So the programmer no longer has to think about that, and the language becomes more mathematical as a result of that uh, detail abstraction. And I don't think those are the only things that could be abstracted in the runtime. You can imagine things like, uh, I mean, to some extent, some of these are already starting to be abstracted into the runtime. So things like logging, um, um, uh, Metrics, profiling, uh, observability. Uh, like if you can imagine authentication being like integrated into the language, things like that. And like, but in order to do that, Effects, the language no longer be 
Sorry, what'd you say? Effects are another thing that's yeah, exactly. starting to be integrated into languages or into the mm-hmm. runtime of languages. Exactly. And so, but you, you can only have those opinionated runtimes if the language starts to become more special purpose and tailored around a very specific use case. And that's where I think we're going to have uh, a sort of era where we're going to have a large, a large number. Of, you can already kind of see that happening today in one area, which is uh, blockchain, right? So the blockchain industry, we're getting this proliferation of these blockchain languages, but I don't think it will be limited to the blockchain industry. I think we'll see start to see the same phenomenon in outside in, uh, in all industries. So you like, for example, you'll start to see languages for programming a distributed system. So like uh, Unison, Unison is an example mm-hmm. of a language which is becoming more special purpose towards a specific application. Uh, and, the, the, and, and, and the main bottleneck here is compiler advances in compiler research and compiler technology. So like frameworks that make it more easy to implement things like especially type inference, interpretation, or compilation, uh, the easier those things become, the more programming languages will begin to fragment into smaller, more special purpose languages. So a good example of this is Rock. We had on um, the creator of Rock a while back, and and we asked him, uh, do you expect that Rock be um, built, the Rock compiler be built with Rock? And he's like, nope. Uh, Rock is not a language that's created to build compiler compilers. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of fascinated by that, but yeah, I think that's to your point. Like, like I, I think he built the Rock compiler in Haskell, right? Because Haskell is so. great for building compilers, and right. so yeah. Well, was it, it Rust? The, Rust or Haskell? I can't remember, but uh, either one of those. Yeah, no. and and the the do the compiler in the language is kind of a hat trick, and not. You know, I think we've always just kind of considered it. Oh well, you have to do that, but it's like, well, why? Do you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Use a language that's great for mm-hmm. compilers and not, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And and Rock is not intended to be a language for building compilers. Yeah, definitely agree with you. So, uh, so with Doll, what are the use cases that that you think would be a good fit for like that special? more limited language and and how do you how does doll avoid that slippery slope down to general purpose so for the first question what uh use cases that we market at doll for i would say ops or, or devops I, I think of it more as ops is, is the big one so things like uh doll is very commonly used for generating yaml uh so things like uh terraform uh cloud formation templates uh Docker Compose, Kubernetes Kubernetes is one of the the biggest one. Uh, Yeah, and uh, and a lot of it is due to the fact that uh, because of Doll's uh, language security guarantees, it provides very strong static assurances, which current tooling does not, right? Like you can can have a much higher comp, like let's let's use Kubernetes as an example. Uh, If if you use Doll Doll Kubernetes package uh, to generate a Kubernetes uh, resource, you have a much higher confidence that that resource will be well formed than if you use other tools, for example, like Helm or whatever, what have you, or or handoff. It's like or, static uh, typing, right? It's like one of the benefits of Doll is yeah. giving you static typing, even when your underlying system doesn't have that construct of uh, like the runtime. The Kubernetes runtime doesn't have it'll, you know, try to validate a YAML and be like at runtime, be like nope, but but it doesn't have a concept of of a type system around the YAML. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And also, like, so I mentioned before that Doll has a strict emphasis on language security. And while that is not strictly necessary for generating, say, a Kubernetes configuration, uh, but it, that really appeals to ops people because they are people who are very conscious about security concerns. Like, usually whenever you introduce a new tool, the very first thing they'll ask is like, 
okay, like, can this make network requests? Like, can it delete things? And they'll be the first to push back on anything that is too powerful or has, has too many privileges or permissions. And because That's one of the reasons language... why a lot of these systems don't use a general purpose language is mm -hmm. because then you have to implement a whole ton of things to make sure that the that the the tie it <laughs> off the code that you're giving it is not going to be do the wrong thing <laughs> exactly. And so so the fact that Doll gives so like Doll's emphasis on language security is a way of marketing to them to kind of say like we understand your needs what what makes what you care about and what they care about is is security and and like understanding interpreting providing static assurances about the code uh sandboxing uh and so that's just like it's just another clue that they kind of feel like i'm in the right place and this tool kind of like is is trying to do what i'm trying to do here and do you uh, think that, that kind of thing needs to like be designed that seems like an architectural decision not something that you do after the fact yes so uh i mean it was so it it was it, doll's emphasis on language security kind of started from the very beginning again it goes back to that, that thought experiment like can we get a language which is uh that balances being inert while still being programmable and one of the emergent phenomenon of that was that doll became a very secure language compared to other languages uh but you know, at least that that explains how it started that way uh keeping it that way it uh, boils down to the fact that I did, a, as as the person who created Doll, I have a lot of influence in the language's evolution, and I constantly pressed against feature requests that would compromise those uh, language security guarantees, because I knew that this is one of the key things that our, our market cares about, and they don't want to see that, like, for example, like, one thing a lot of people would like for other use cases would be the ability for Doll to be able to run sub-processes to, like, generate Doll code or, or Doll expressions. And that would like forking, forking out to an yeah. external process. Even just like running yeah. some shell command to like, you know, yeah. generate something. Yeah. Uh, and that would greatly compromise the safety of Doll to the point that like, uh, yeah. yeah. So that's the reason why we don't implement I, that, for example. That's like, like there is no way to have effects in Doll, right? Like you can't talk to the outside world. Is that, yeah. Is so that true? The only effect you can have is importing doll code uh, via either files or URLs. And if you want to, you can disable the URL imports too, or even the file imports if you really wanted to, but most people don't want that. Uh, so, so yeah. Like, so there is no ability to have an effect uh, outside of yeah. loading another doll code. And so and if you give people an escape hatch where they could do any effect that they want, you've just like open, open, You've, you've turned doll into not doll anymore, right? Yeah, like you've exactly. taken those those that language security off the table, and but that's one of the the values of the of the language is is the ability to not do that. The guarantees that you can't do that. Yeah. So, like, if you go to dolling.org, like one of the key sentences on the the pitch is that the language aims to support safely importing and evaluating untrusted doll code, even code authored by malicious users. And we treat the inability to do so as a specification bug. So we're always hardening the language in various ways to keep that guarantee for end users. You don't expect to have a log for shell type of scenario with all. <laughs> yeah, so like the log for shell, there were like many aspects of the log for shell uh, breach that were just completely impossible in Doll. Because Doll actually yeah. has many things that prevent those kinds of exploits. That's great. So you can import and analyze Doll code, and then what do you? I mean, presumably you produce something. You produce what configurations, 
Yeah. So like, uh, so they're, they're conceptually, if you're, if you use doll to generate say YAML, there are conceptually two steps. So there's interpretation. So taking uh, a doll program and just evaluating it to uh, in inert normal form. So the inert, the inert normal form is still a valid doll program. It's just that there's nothing left that can be evaluated in that program. So it could be like a record, right? And then the second step is taking that doll expression, possibly a record, and converting that to YAML. And so that, that two-phase approach is, is, is very important because then it makes it easier for us to roll out multiple uh, backends for doll, right? Because then we can just swap out the final step and say, okay, we interpret doll, and now we can generate JSON instead, or XML, or a CSV file, and so on. You, That's cool. You could have just used Haskell, right? Yeah. So like this is this comes down come down to the fact that like configuration languages as as a market, if you if, I mean really that's not a market, but if you imagine it did, if there were, uh, they have some constraints that uh, ordinary programming languages do not. So one of those constraints is that uh, the tool chain for interpreting the language needs to be very lightweight, right? So like let's give an example of where this goes wrong in Haskell, right? There are like Xmonad is the classic example of a program which is configured as a Haskell file. And it's very heavyweight. You need to have the GHC tool chain on your system in order to rebuild the Xmonad. Uh, and that the GHC tool chain is like, depending on how you install it, it could be like gigabytes large, right? Yes. And oh. doll, and also it's like, you know, dynamically linked, it's very sprawling and there's several files across the system and it can, uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's a mess, right? And in contrast, doll is available both as a standalone binary. So if you're converting to like JSON or YAML, you can just provide, you can get a statically linked binary uh, ready for any platform. It's very tiny, just a few megabytes, and it does the conversion for you. And you can also embed it within many programming languages too, directly. So then that makes it even more lightweight. It's just like a, uh, another dependency, which is just, I don't know how, I don't know how much it makes the application binary bigger, but uh, so, so yeah. one of the motivating so, like, factors of DAL is to have this like lightweight uh, ability to convert from the text form to whatever other yeah. form you you want. Yeah. So the key the key aspect is in the configuration languages have to be easy to embed. They have to be very lightweight in their implementation. Uh, but that and so that also makes it uh, harder too, right? Because if you think about it, like uh, so, well, there are two ways you can do a configuration language. One is a command line tool which just converts uh, your your language to some flat format like JSON or YAML. Uh, that's easier. Um, the hard part is if you want to embed it in a host programming language, because now it not only needs to be lightweight in terms of its implementation, uh, but it needs to be lightweight in terms of its semantics, right? Because let's, mm -hmm. let's say if your language relies on a very sophisticated type checker, uh, then you need to implement that type checker in every language that you can embed your, your, your configuration language into. So like, you know, if I want to create a Python binding to doll, I need to implement doll's type system in Python, right? And that may, the more complicated doll's type system gets, the harder it is to port to a new language like Python. Hmm. So um, could you replace Gradle? Uh, I'm not that familiar with Gradle. But, <laughs> uh, I can't say. I have had some uh, challenges with the, I think this is more than just Gradle. Build tools have universally done a terrible job at giving us DSLs that find that balance between general purpose language and and declarative you can't do what you need with maven on the declarative can't do what you need side and gradle on the general purpose side and it feels like doll would provide a much better balance for what you need like i don't want 
my build script to actually or build definition to be able to make network calls. I don't want that to be possible. <laughs> I want the safety that doll provides uh, in my build definition. Um, so, and I think there is at least one build tool that is using doll for the build configuration. Is that, is that correct? Uh, Spago for peer script. The, the peer script build tool uses uh, doll as its configuration language, if I remember correctly. I wonder, we need to look into that and see how that's working out for them. But so um, you you're the you created the language and you're the lead, but it's, it made it sound like there were other people working on it. How many yeah, people are so working on the it? Governance, oh, sorry for interrupting. <laughs> and also, how do you interact while you're developing? Yeah, so Doll has a has a very formal governance system. So first off, Doll has a a formal language standard, uh, and uh, and we have a, a voting process for amending the language standard. Uh, and basically, to get a vote on the standard, you have to have implemented the spec. So every implementation of Doll gets one vote on any changes to the language standard, uh, including myself. So I, I as the as the maintainer of the Haskell implementation, get one vote on proposed changes to the language standard. Uh, that said, they're all so th th that's the formal rules for how the language evolves. Uh, informally, like as the person who created Dalt, I have a lot of influence. So, like if I push really hard uh, against something, most people will listen to me and not do it. So like there is that informal aspect to it too. Uh, but formally, we do have rules in place for how uh, changes are made. Uh, and that also appeals to a lot of people too. The fact that like Dahl is not just like, you know, an implementation defined language uh, and that has like rules around language evolution. So like the language becomes much more stable and they know that they have input into the language evolution process. And uh, yeah, so that so I think the governance process does a lot to help Dahl's uh, adoption too. Hmm. That's cool. Can I go on a SQL rant for a minute? Yes. SQL is terrible. Um, for many reasons, <laughs> uh, some of which are no static typing, um, no ability for reuse, uh, and I don't know. Probably I, error handling. Error handling. Yeah, could go on for a while. But um, could Doll be a better query language? Uh, I would say. I would not advocate Doll for this use case. If I were designing a language for this, uh, I would have designed it differently, uh, truthfully. Um, so, for example, like for example, Doll does not has very limited type inference, if at all, uh, and so that makes several things, especially like data processing things, uh, much more heavyweight compared to like the untyped versions. Uh, so, like, if I were really designing for the data data science, data processing, SQL use case, uh, I would have a I would have a stronger inference. Uh, I'd have a stronger emphasis on type inference, even if that meant increasing the complexity of the language, because I feel like that would be huh. kind of a hard hard requirement for yeah. uh, adoption. That's fair. We we recently had on uh, the Flix language creator, and they embedded prologue. Is it like? Pro the prologue well, language it was a prologue like I don't prolog -like think it was a prologue. It was, but a prologue like language. Yeah, so they no. embedded that into the Flix language, but it seems like that is a language that is very much created for queries, and and I guess it's it's fair to say that that Doll's design was not for being a query language. 
um, it was much more for being a configuration language. And maybe those, maybe it really does make sense to have different DSLs for those two different needs. And mm-hmm. yeah, maybe I'm maybe I'm uh, trying to do Getz's law and push Dahl into a more general purpose direction when when we need, like you're saying, we shouldn't do that. We, we should keep Dahl focused on what what Dahl is good at and made for and not try to make it for something so, else. Yeah, I can think of one application domain, which in my view is very poorly served right now. I don't think Dahl should do it, but I think like there is a big gap, which is there needs to be something like uh, a, a JSON for code, meaning that like some code, I mean, you, you could technically do this with Dahl, but I would not recommend it. Uh, workflow. Some, so workflow languages is where you're going. Is this where you're going? Basically, like, like some 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 code that you can serialize and transmit over the wire. Like think about like especially like for distributed systems programming, the ability to like send like let me give you an example. Like an, an API, right? Typically, the way you design like some some web API is that like if you want to filter the results, there'll be like some pre pre built ways of filtering things. Uh, like you'll have like you know. You can you can provide like various conditionals you can filter on. If you really want to be fancy, you can use like GraphQL, right? But there's nothing that where I can just like I cannot just send the server a function for filtering the results. Like that's what I would like really mm-hmm. like to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's nothing that can do that right now. I feel like that's a really big missing gap in the programming ecosystem. Yeah. What is the killer app for Doll? I think it's ops. Kubernetes, Kubernetes, in my opinion, is is the biggest use case for Doll. I still think there are some key things Doll is missing to really corner the Kubernetes market. But if there were a killer app, Kubernetes would be the closest thing to one for Doll. Yeah, yeah, I'm 100 with that because YAML. I really hate working with YAML. Um, it's not typed. It the syntax is terrible. Um, there's no ability for like good reuse. Um, which I think the ecosystem has kind of built things on top of YAML to address some of those. But I'm like, we should just start at the fundamentals, build something that is that from the get-go is for that, addressing that need, instead of trying to bolt YAML on top of YAML to make the issues with YAML go away. You know, and so anyways, I, I think Doll, I think you're right. Doll is uh so much better of an option because it gives me the way that I want to work with Kubernetes without having to deal with YAML. This seems like kind of a PhD dissertation. Is that where it started or? Uh, no. So like, uh, I actually don't have a formal background in computer science. Like I actually have a PhD in biochemistry, not uh, computer science. Oh. Okay. Huh. So you just self-taught everything. Yeah, I just self-taught how to do that stuff. Uh, if I remember correctly, the, the way I got into this was I was, uh, gosh, it's hard to even remember, but there were there were a few like key papers that like really got me interested in this. Uh, one was by Simon Peden Jones. It was uh, about like Henk. Uh, uh, let me just see if I can pull up the name. Uh, Hank, a typed intermediate language. I think that that is out of all the papers I read, that was the one that like really pushed me off the deep end into learning about all of this stuff. Uh, huh. That's cool. I'll have to do some research on that. I feel like in some ways we've been in the dark ages of declarative languages. It just feels like outside of Doll, there just 
we we just keep doing the same wrong thing over and over again and keep uh making the same mistakes with declarative languages so um maybe that would be a good transition to nix because i don't know much about nix but it comes up a lot when i kind of complain on twitter about declarative languages and very other things i think so I don't know. You you know much more about Nix. Give us the give us the rundown of what Nix is and how it may relate to this this conversation. Yeah. So uh, Nix is well. So there's Nix. The ecosystem is and the ecosystem has several parts to it. So there's Nix the language, which is a build tool, and then you have Nix packages the software distribution, which builds on top of that build tool, and then you also have Nix OS. <laughs> the Nix operating system, which builds on top of Nix packages and Nix. And uh, Nix is designed to be a polyglot build tool, kind of like Bazel uh, or Pants, or I, I'm not that familiar with the alternatives, but like it, it's, so it can build a software in multiple languages. And usually that's one of the common reasons why people first reach to Nix is because they start off with their language specific build tool, like Cargo for Rust or Cabal for Haskell or I don't know, Cradle for Python. <laughs> then they need to incorporate other things. Uh, and uh, and sometimes you can do that using Docker, like one thing runs in one container, one thing runs in another container. But sometimes you actually have a service or, an, or a binary where you need to actually incorporate multiple languages in, in one into one monolithic executable. And then you need a, a polyglot build tool. So Nix does very well in that regard. And the key and Nix, I think the main thing that distinguishes Nix from other build tools is it's just it's just way better <laughs> than the other build tools. Like, uh, like so, it's, so Nix actually did start as a PhD thesis. So Ilko Dolstra's uh, the thesis uh, explains the motivation behind Nix. In fact, I highly encourage anybody who uses Nix and hasn't read the thesis to read it because it, it it does a really great job of motivating. What problems? What are the problems that Nick solves, and why they need to be solved? Huh. So I think he he really nailed the motivation for Nick quite well in that thesis. And that's that's good to hear that that exists because I think in Bruce and I's challenges with build tools, it it didn't seem like anyone had looked at what are the problems that build tools have to solve, and how can we from the beginning kind of design a system that will that will address those things. And, you know, build tools seem to be much more built from uh, starting with one small problem and then you realize you have this other problem. And so then you like tack on to your build system a solution to that problem. And then it just grows and grows and grows into this monster. And that's kind of the typical path of a build tool. Yeah. So like in terms of going back to the whole killer app conversation, uh, there are people who have different views on what is the killer app for Nix. My own personal view is that the killer app for the Nix ecosystem is the Nix operating system. Uh, I view it as the best operating system for production servers, meaning that it provides, again, for people with a strong emphasis on language on security, Nix, I feel, does a much better job than other oper operating systems in terms of security guarantees. Uh, because it was, again, like a lot of things that Nix does lend themselves towards security. So things like, you know, immutable deployments. Uh, uh, so like the, well, it's it's hard to explain all of it. But like, for example, when you deploy, so let me make a, a contrast to Docker, for example. So uh, one common issue that many Docker containers have, unless they're very carefully engineered, 
is that the container can be littered with dependencies that are not necessary at runtime. So, so there's build time dependencies, and then there's runtime dependencies. And it's very common for it to be polluted with build time dependencies. Uh, and the way Nix works is that uh, it if you build a container using Nix, uh, then you can guarantee that the container only has runtime dependencies. It's an incredibly lean container. Uh, like it, it, it'll be as lean as something that like the most experienced Docker engineer using Alpine Linux could possibly build. Maybe even leaner. Uh, so Nix. I've always and... wondered why operating systems don't have a construct around around dependency management. Like I'm so used to in the Java world of managing dependencies in a way like you're saying, where I can have different different dependency graphs that are used, one for build time, one for runtime, one for test, whatever, right? And an operating system has no construct of these things require these things and they require them at different phases or different different outputs or whatever. But you're saying Nix does that. Uh, yeah, so like Nix actually can detect, uh, it can very cleverly detect which dependencies are needed at runtime. Uh, and then it can, and so whenever you like copy a Nix binary to another machine, uh, Nix has a notion of a closure. So like that binary and all of its dependencies. And Nix can detect what dependencies are build time dependencies and what dependencies are runtime dependencies. So if you copy a closure to any destination or you build a container from it, uh, only runtime dependencies will be copied over uh, when you do so. Uh, and also uh, those dependencies are immutable. So like you cannot accidentally like swap out a compiler with a newer version by accident. You have to like, again, build a new closure if you want to do that. So you can't have like an attack and the Nix store uh, when it's not building anything is mounted read only. So an attacker, like if they gain access to the system, uh, they, they cannot just like start tampering with the Nix store and editing your dependencies, for example. So like lots of the small details add up to provide like greater uh, competence and security. Uh, NixOS systems are also easier to audit statically. So without even running a system, I can, so Nix has one of the very compelling features of NixOS is it has a, a centralized configuration model called the NixOS option system. So literally everything about the system that you can want to configure, you do so using a uniform options interface. So things from like uh, kernel boot parameters to systemd options to like patches for various services, to uh, containers, container definitions, like literally anything you can think about, the, the firewall, you can configure using a uniform option syntax and you can query it too using the same uniform option syntax. Mm -hmm. So for example, like if I wanna see what ports, are, what ports are open on this system, I can query that without ever building or deploying the system. I can guarantee it'll be exactly these sets of ports. That's a very that's strong cool. guarantee that's not easy to make with other systems. You just have to like, empirically deploy the system like you know run and map against it to see like what's what ports are open uh a, so a concept that i've seen kind of emerging lately is the idea of like testable infrastructure like how do you write a test against your infrastructure like you're saying like i, I if i'm building if i'm doing infrastructure engineering i would like to write a test that says the only open port is 8080 whatever it may be mm -hmm. That's yeah, and typically so really hard shill. with the way we do infrastructure today, right? I'm going to shill one of my other blog posts, which is called nice. uh, How to Use NixOS for Lightweight Integration Tests. Uh, so NixOS has a very great integration testing story. So given a NixOS configuration, it makes it very easy to uh, spin up one or more virtual machines that that have those configurations and then like and then or, then like run an orchestration script, which can like do various things to the machines, run various scripts, 
test various things about it. Uh, and it's it's very great for integration testing. And it's uh and it's be, and, and it can be run safely in parallel. So like I can run a whole matrix of tests of very, like various you know variations of this uh, that are completely isolated from one another. Kind of like Docker Compose, very similar in spirit, but I think the execution of NixOS tests is much better than Docker Compose, in my opinion. That's cool. So what's the language that Nix uses then for for configuration? Or, yeah, it's, I guess well, so it's, Nix is the pedantic answer. Uh, like okay. really, Nix actually has three languages. So there's Nix, the build language. Uh, and so like that's, that's the foundation of everything. For Nix like the packages, build definition. Yeah, exactly. Like how, how to build something. Okay. Uh, Nix packages has a an embedded DSL. It's still implemented in Nix for specifying package uh, definitions. And the reason they do this is to make it easier to do deep overrides. So, for example, I can say, let's say, uh, OpenSSL vulnerability comes out, and I want to make sure that everything picks up that patch, uh, both at build time and runtime. Like Nix, so because of this DSL that Nix packages uses, it's very easy to overlay this deep override to make sure that everything that uses OpenSSL picks up that patch. Uh, similarly, using the same overlay system, I can do things like turn on all security hardening flags for everything that's built with C uh, mm. across the board. And, you know, everything will just get rebuilt and pick that up, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that, that's the second language. So there's there's a DSL inside of Nix, which is calling the Nix packages overlay system. Okay. And then the third language is the NixOS module system. So the thing for specifying, configuring, and querying those NixOS options. So that's also a DSL which is implemented inside of Nix. But like you have to also learn that DSL to effectively use NixOS. Could they have just used Doll for any of this? Uh, so you can compile Doll to Nix. So there's okay. a Doll to Nix executable. <laughs> That's one of Doll's many backends. Nice. Uh, I would say it's not. I would not. I would say that works in the small, but not in the large. So like one of my uh, side projects is working on actually designing. Uh, a, a type checker for Nix that, that or a, 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 I guess a language for Nix, a front end for Nix, including type checking that works well in the large because Nix is an untyped language, which uh, has some issues as it scales to larger definitions. It does scale. Nix packages is huge. Like it, it rivals Debian in terms of like the wow. number of packages that they, they support and maintain. Uh, but it's, uh, but like, again, the lack of types really shows. It's probably one of the biggest complaints people have about the languages. Uh, so uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't think Doll would scale to that degree uh, for as a as a front end for Nix. Yeah, that's cool. Nix. Well, now Bruce, we got to do more investigation on Nix and on Doll. Um, I think at one point I I went looking to see if I could like make my laptop be be Nix, like my desktop Linux laptop like be Nix, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find a way to do that. Maybe it exists, but but I was like, I like all the the concepts of Nix, but it did seem a little more oriented towards server um, mm -hmm. systems than a, than my desktop machine. Or yeah, that, maybe yeah. we need to take the lesson from Linux, and it's like, well, yeah, it's good for servers, but maybe Linux on the desktop is never gonna hey, be come a on. big thing. I've used Linux on the desktop for yeah, um, I know, I've, I've I've seen, I've seen, <laughs> I've, I've had that experience. Yeah, well, trust me, I started trying to use Linux on the desktop back before Red Hat. The the first, you know, I kept every year I would try and install it. And uh, it would just always, you'd always run into this point, they'd ask questions. I didn't know how to understand Red Hat was the first one that would actually go through the whole install process. 
Yeah. So, so no, I, I have plenty of experience with this. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, uh, so would, could you use Nix? Would you use Nix as an alternative to like Gradle in our world of Gradle or SPT? Like, would that be, or is it, doesn't it, does it not make sense unless you're really doing like with this polyglot build? Uh, so you could, I would say it makes the most sense once you transition to the polyglot build. So Nix packages supports many languages. Uh, and so, but I would say, yeah, it's mainly the polyglot use case. Like I don't feel that Nix as a build tool is the killer app for Nix personally. Uh, one of the main reasons why is because Nix does not support Windows. I can't. I feel like you can't market to like this is going to be you know a build tool replacement if you don't support Windows. Yeah. Or all platforms. It's got its own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it does support Mac and Linux. You know, and mo- most Linux is most I guess Linux. With WSL, WSL catching on more, maybe that would give us. Yeah, an option, but there's but, still yeah. a lot of people who are just going to work in normal. But but on the just subject, you you mentioned like pants as a build system and you know that you know you could do it seems like they're trying to expand what would be a build system that you would choose now if you were doing say kotlin work or scholar work or you know something like that i i don't know honestly oh, okay. <laughs> like i'm right. not that familiar with uh i would say probably not the only thing i could competently say is probably not nix and the reason why is because um Scala, I think, is one of the few Nix languages which is not supported by Nix. There are some nascent, like Scala to Nix, SBT to Nix uh, tools out there. We actually try to use them at work. Uh, so, like, we, we use Scala at work and we use Nix, uh, and they did not work well. They were poorly maintained, low quality, and so we ended up just doing the dumb thing and just having like Nix run SBT inside of a Nix build, and that worked for us temporarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a lot, one thing that people, a lot of people don't appreciate is that like Nix lets you do the dumb thing. So like in the worst case scenario, you can just have like a Nix build, which just runs some bash script, kind of like you would in Jenkins, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that's what we do in cases where the Nix support is just lacking for any particular ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I need, I do need to try out Nix because I, um, I used to use Gentoo. And I, I loved a lot of things about Gentoo, and it sounds like me. There's maybe some similarities with with what Gentoo is doing and what Nix is doing around having an understanding of how a system gets built from scratch and all the dependencies that go into that, and um, the isolation of 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 different packages is, I think, um, something I liked about Gentoo. But yeah, gotta give it a try. Mm-hmm. Um wow. Well that is been super helpful. Um if we if Bruce and I are gonna take some time and go learn doll, we probably need to start with a problem that we're solving. And now that I'm not doing so much cloud stuff, I'm not doing Kubernetes much anymore. Bruce, we'll have to figure out what problem we want to solve that that could potentially be solved by doll, I guess, start there instead of just learning the language for the sake of learning the language, which is always fun, but probably be no, better I'd to need start some with. motivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
do we have do we have any declarative stuff in our book uh not yet I, as far as i know no. all right well i'll have to find a place so well that was fun anything else uh not that i can think of <laughs> Well, that was super helpful. Thank you so much, Gabriella, for joining us and um, keep doing the amazing stuff, pushing the world forward into EDSLs and Nick's and Doll and all the other good stuff. But oh, and what is your blog? Where can people find your blog at? Oh, yeah. So my blog is haskellforall.com. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Gabriella. All right. You're welcome. Thanks. <laughs>